Is Buffy Summers the anti-Rand? Is Faith a Nietzschean Superman? Is Anya a paragon of capitalism? Coming up on Social Science Fiction. You're listening to Social Science Fiction, a podcast that blends political science and nerd culture, examining the politics of science fiction and fantasy. Hey everybody, happy October. All this month, we are celebrating Halloween with horror and monster-themed episodes. And we're starting off with a discussion of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Now, I'm thrilled to finally be getting around to a Buffy episode. This is one of my favorite TV series of all time. I go back and rewatch it almost once a year. And in my opinion, it still holds up incredibly well. It has absolutely amazing characters and character development. I love the way these characters grow and change over the course of seven seasons. And it just speaks to absolutely amazing writing. The Willow we see in season six and seven is not the same Willow we see in seasons one and two, but you can see how she changed. You can totally understand the process by which this character became a different character. I absolutely love it. Absolutely great stories amazing plot twists, some of my favorite villains of any series ever, in my opinion, some of the villains, especially the mayor in season three, are up there, in my opinion, with Emperor Palpatine, in terms of being villains who are just so fun to watch because they clearly just get a kick out of being evil. Just like Palpatine, these are villains who know that they're evil, like that they're evil, and get a kick out of doing evil things and hatching evil schemes and going after the heroes, and just have a blast doing it, and it's so fun to watch them. So some of the best villains of any series ever. And also I just add, I think Buffy the Vampire Slayer is a show that does a great job of balancing what you would call Monster of the Week episodes versus long-term story arcs and character development. It's a series that does a really good job of having some episodes that advance a big season-long plot along with other episodes that are just fun one-offs where Buffy fights some random monster that we never see again. But even in those episodes, you manage to see characters grow and change. And even as we're doing fun Monster of the Week stuff, we're still advancing larger plots and so on. So Buffy, more than almost any other show I can think of, does a great job of doing that. Balancing single episodes versus long plots. Something Buffy does way better, for example, than another of my favorite series of all time, The X-Files, which, while I loved it, could never really nail that down. X-Files never seemed to figure out how to balance out Monster of the Week versus long-term stuff. I think their one-off episodes were always way better than the bigger mythology stuff. That's something I'll likely be talking about later in October, but for now, sticking with Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I've been re-watching Buffy the Vampire Slayer, I've been thinking about the show, and I've come to a conclusion. Buffy Summers is the anti-Rand. Everything about Buffy as a character, about her philosophy, her actions, her behavior, her character development, and everything about the philosophy of the show in general is the complete opposite of the thinking of the political philosopher and writer Ayn Rand. Now, if you're not familiar with Ayn Rand, she was a philosopher, a writer, best known for her philosophy known as objectivism, as well as her work as an author, her two most famous books being The Fountainhead, published in 1943, and Atlas Shrugged, by far her most famous work, published in 1957. 
in Ayn Rand, her philosophy objectivism as portrayed in her writing. It's all about emphasizing and celebrating individuality and individual achievement. Her books tend to feature remarkably gifted, talented, driven individuals who, through their own individual efforts, achieve amazing things and overcome the opposition of less talented, less visionary, less driven people who are standing in their way. Atlas Shrugged, in particular, emphasizes the idea that there are certain truly remarkable, exceptional individuals who basically hold up the world, who drive progress forward, who drive humanity forward, who make things better for everybody through their efforts, through the things they build, the things they invent, the things they develop. And the use of the term Atlas referencing the mythological figure who holds the entire world on his back. And Atlas Shrugged is about the idea that these individuals should work solely for their own benefit. They should stop thinking about how they help the world or what they owe to the world. should stop holding the world up. They should shrug, throw off the weight of the world, and instead use their talents for their own benefit and not worry about the people who depend on them or who are standing in their way. That's essentially the idea. And so Rand develops in these books, in her philosophy, a lot of ideas that tend to appeal to conservatives, to libertarians, being someone who emphasizes individuality, individual freedom, individual achievement, and so on. Her ideas will appeal to people who care about and believe in the importance of capitalism, individual liberty, limited government, all things that Rand was a supporter of, because these are things that allow individuals to pursue their own interests and to flourish. Of course, Rand takes a step further than a lot of conservatives and libertarians by adding a moral component to her philosophy, essentially arguing not simply that people should be free to pursue their own interests, that people should be free to be selfish. Rand making an ethical, a moral argument that, in the words of Gordon Gekko, greed is good. And of course, while Gordon Gekko was speaking kind of in a theoretical economic sense, talking about how greed is good for practical reasons, greed drives people to pursue their own interests and individuals pursuing their own interests in a free market will mean that the economy moves forward. People will produce things that are desired, that are in demand because they know they'll make money from it. People will compete with each other because they're trying to get the best deal and so on and that will drive the economy forward, it'll keep prices low. and. On on and on and on. All the stuff Adam Smith was talking about hundreds of years ago, all the stuff that any student of economics has heard before. But as opposed to Gecko, as opposed to Adam Smith or these other free market economists who say greed is good from a theoretical or practical stance, Rand makes the argument that greed is good ethically speaking, that greed is a moral virtue. And this is where Rand loses a lot of those libertarians, a lot of those conservatives. Not all, mind you. Some libertarians and conservatives will also profess to be objectivists, but lots of libertarians and conservatives will probably draw the line here and say, yeah, we believe greed is permissible and can help the economy, but we're not going to go out and say that it's morally justified. We're not going to say that it's a virtue. But this is the position that Rand takes and defends. Selfishness, looking out for oneself exclusively, is virtuous. It is the only moral way to behave. Altruism, self-sacrifice, these things are morally wrong. Essentially, a person should live for him or herself. 
to self-sacrifice, to give up something of yourself for others for no gain is essentially to devalue your own life. And that is morally wrong. Your life has value. And so the only ethical behavior is to live for the betterment of your own life. Now, this isn't to say, according to Rand, that one can never do something nice for another person, that one can't have friends that they care about and do things for, but the argument Rand makes is if you do something for someone else, you should be doing that thing because it brings you pleasure, because it brings you joy. To help others simply because they need help, not because it brings you some kind of joy to help them, that is morally wrong. So, I think a lot of us would see this as sort of a very hollow friendship, but according to Rand, her philosophy does not preclude friendship and help and charity. It just has to fall within certain lines. And so these are the kind of characters that Rand writes about in her novels. Characters who live for themselves. Characters who put their incredible talent and drive to use for their own betterment, or characters whose character arc involves them going from being a person who believes in self-sacrifice to one who realizes that the best thing to do is to live for yourself. And so that's the basics of objectivism. That's what Rand gives us in The Fountainhead, especially in Atlas Shrugged. And in all of these things, Buffy the Vampire Slayer gives us the exact opposite view. And if you're not familiar with Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the background is at all times in the world, there is one girl who is the Slayer. And this is a girl or a young woman who is imbued with basically superpowers, super strength, super fast reflexes, improved healing and resilience and endurance and so on. And the Slayer has the duty to fight vampires and demons and all kinds of various other supernatural monsters to protect humanity. And if the Slayer dies, then the powers of the Slayer pass on to another girl who takes on the role of the Slayer. And Buffy the Vampire Slayer follows the adventures of Buffy Summers, who becomes the Slayer while she's in high school and serves as the Slayer throughout the series. Now, right off the bat, in Buffy we have a character with the kind of skill and drive that Rand might write about. Obviously more fantastical and supernatural than the stuff Rand wrote, but Buffy Summers is someone who is uniquely skilled and talented, has remarkable drive and ability. However, her character arc follows the complete reverse of a character in a Rand novel. Buffy begins season one really seeking to evade her responsibilities, her duties as the Slayer. She wants to live a normal life. She does not want to deal with the responsibilities of being the Slayer. She doesn't want to put herself in danger. She doesn't want to go out and fight. She wants to be able to be a normal high school kid and live a normal life. And Rand would say, this is her right. She has every right to live for herself, to live as she chooses. She'd probably tell Buffy she should not try to live an entirely normal life. She should use the skills she has to benefit herself in some way. There's probably lots of ways she could make money using her Slayer abilities, but she certainly shouldn't be going out and risking her life and fighting monsters for free. But at any rate, Buffy definitely starts closer to living the way Rand would say she should live. Live for yourself. But Buffy's character arc over the course of the series sees her going in the exact opposite direction. She begins fulfilling her duties as the Slayer, reluctantly at first, with a lot of prodding from her watcher, Rupert Giles, 
but she does begin serving as the Slayer, fighting monsters, protecting people. She complains about it constantly. She exhibits frustration at her inability to live a normal life, but she does it anyway. And by the time we get into the middle and late seasons of the series, what we see is Buffy ultimately embraces her role as the Slayer, seeing it not simply as something she's required to do because others are telling her to do it, but because she sees it as a moral responsibility, as what she is supposed to do. She comes to adopt more of a Spider-Man ethic. With great power comes great responsibility. She has these abilities. She has the power to fight these monsters. That makes her responsible for protecting those who do not. And now, Ayn Rand would ask Buffy, why are you doing this? Why are you sacrificing your well-being, your happiness, at the end of season one and at the end of season five, your life for others, for no gain for yourself? Does your life have no moral value? Don't you think you have an ethical responsibility to protect your own life, to serve your own life? And Buffy's response would be, no, she has a moral duty to help those she can help. It's her job. And it's interesting that Buffy continues throughout the later seasons to talk about slaying a lot as if it's a job. This is something that Kendra the Vampire Slayer calls attention to in season two. Buffy keeps talking about her duties as the Slayer as if it's a job. And Kendra references this as if it's a bad thing, but it seems to be telling that Buffy does seem to view her slaying as something that carries the same responsibility, the same duty as a job. Even after Buffy quits the council, in season three, even after Buffy is not really answering to any higher authority anymore, she continues to see herself as doing a job. She continues to see her slaying as something that she has an obligation to do, just the same as if it were a job she were being paid for. So she clearly sees slaying as an obligation, but a moral and ethical obligation. No one is paying her to do this. No one is coercing her to do this. She's not being forced to do it. It is a sacrifice she feels obligated to make for moral reasons, but it's a sacrifice she does make for her friends and for all of humanity freely, even unto death. In the words of the spirit of the first slayer, death is her gift. She views what she does as a gift to her loved ones, to the human race. And taking this a step further, again, the view of Buffy and the view we get from the series in general is that this is a sacrifice you make for other people because they need it. I'm reminded of the season two episode where Buffy and the Scooby gang encounter the ghost of a student haunting the high school. And this ghost in life had a relationship with one of his teachers. And when this teacher rejected him, he, in a fit of anger, accidentally shoots her and then kills himself and ends up decades later roaming the high school, racked with guilt for what he's done. And towards the end of the episode, Giles explains to the gang that this ghost is seeking forgiveness, seeking redemption, and Buffy, for all kinds of character reasons that we won't go into here, but given what's happening to her at this point in the season, is very unwilling to entertain the idea of forgiving this ghost, says that she doesn't want him to be forgiven, he doesn't deserve forgiveness, and Giles calmly explaining to Buffy, we don't forgive people because they deserve it. We forgive people because they need it. 
And this is an important idea, and I think it's one that Buffy ends up carrying with her as the series goes on, as she grows and matures. The idea that it's not about what people deserve, it's what they need. We don't forgive people because they deserve it. We forgive people because they need it. And this applies to other things, too. We don't protect people because they deserve it. We protect people because they need it. We help people because they need help, not necessarily because they deserve it or because we're going to get something out of it. And this is the view that Buffy ultimately seems to embrace with her slang. She does it for people, not because she gets anything out of it. In fact, she sacrifices a great deal to do it. She doesn't do it because the people she helps deserve it. Oftentimes she finds herself helping people that are kind of obnoxious and don't seem to deserve her help, but she does it because they need help. And because she can help them, she feels a moral obligation to do so. And again, this flies completely in the face of what Ayn Rand believed in. You don't help people because they need it. You help people because it brings you some kind of joy. And this is Buffy's character arc, going in the complete opposite direction of an Ayn Rand character, going from someone who wants to evade responsibility for others, going from being someone who wants to live for herself, primarily, to being someone who wants to put the world on her back, someone who won't shrug off that responsibility, who will serve the world because she can and because the world needs it. And one final point here about anti-Randian ideas in Buffy, also important to note that a major theme running throughout Buffy the Vampire Slayer is that Buffy is strengthened by her relationships with her friends and allies. It's something that's referenced again and again in the series, that slayers very rarely survive very long. That when a new girl becomes the slayer, she usually doesn't make it to adulthood. She usually dies at 16 or 17 years old because the work she's doing is so dangerous. She's often killed by a vampire or another monster, and then the next slayer is called and she lives a couple years and ends up dying too. But Buffy survives from being a high school kid into adulthood and continues on and continues to survive and defeat vampires and horrible monsters and so on. She survives and prevails again and again and again. And what the series tells us is what makes Buffy different is her friends. This is something that the vampire, sometimes enemy, sometimes friend, sometimes frenemy, Spike, speaks to over and over again. That what keeps Buffy tied to the world, what keeps her going, what keeps her fighting and surviving is her friends. So a major theme running throughout Buffy the Vampire Slayer is that friends and community are what is important in life, that our friends, our allies, make us stronger. This isn't a series about one exceptional person persevering and winning because of their own individual efforts. It's a series about how this exceptional person is made all the more exceptional, all the stronger, because of her friends. It's about community triumphing together which again, goes against all the themes that Rand wrote about. It goes against everything about her philosophy. Buffy is the anti-Rand. She lives for others. She is made stronger by others. Now, having spoken a little bit about Buffy, it's fun to contrast her with the other major slayer we get on the show, Faith. Now, pretty clear that Faith is a foil for Buffy, and when she's introduced in the show, it's a lot of fun to see the two characters interact together, where Buffy is at first reluctant to embrace her destiny, to use her powers. Faith is someone who revels in her power. And further, she's someone who 
seeks to primarily live for herself to often destructive and sometimes self-destructive ends. So she's a good foil for Buffy, but I wouldn't say Faith is quite a Randian character either. For one thing, Faith clearly has no respect for the autonomy of others. While she believes in living for herself, a Randian quality, she also has no problem taking what she wants by force and essentially making others live for her in some way by benefiting from their labor, their property, and so on. So she has no respect for the individual rights, the individual freedom of others. She has no respect for the property of others. She has no problem busting into a sporting goods store and taking weapons to use in her fights. By the time we get to the end of season three, she has no problem killing other people for personal gain. She is someone who lives for herself, but she doesn't recognize the right of others to live for themselves either. In other words, she lives up to the first half, but not the second half of the famous oath spoken by important characters in the novel Atlas Shrugged. I swear by my life and my love of it that I will never live for the sake of another man, nor ask another man to live for mine. This was kind of the core of Rand's philosophy, as expressed in Atlas Shrugged. You live for yourself, you assume that others will live for themselves. You don't live for anybody else, you don't ask anyone else to live for you. And say what you want about Rand and her philosophy, how it is selfish and greedy. It is at least consistent in this. It advocates selfishness for oneself, but it doesn't expect anything else from others. And Faith definitely breaks with this. She lives for herself, but she doesn't respect the right of others to do the same thing. She takes from others their property, their lives, against their will. So definitely not living a Randian objectivist life herself. In fact, Faith is probably closer to the philosophy of Nietzsche. She is a literal superhuman. She has incredible skill and power. She is certainly exceptionally driven. She's full of that will to power that Nietzsche talked about. And she clearly believes that existing moral systems are meaningless. She puts no stock in anybody's moral code or in religion. On the other hand, she's not exactly philosophical. Nietzsche believed that his ubermensch, his superman, would recognize the meaninglessness of existing moral codes, would come to see that God is dead, that everything is sort of meaningless. But after reaching that nihilist point where we say everything is meaningless, Nietzsche hoped that the superman would go beyond that, that the superman would, through his talents, his will to power, would develop new meaning for humanity, would develop a new code, new ethics, and give new meaning to the human race. So Nietzsche seemed to be waiting for some kind of philosopher king, someone who had the power to lead people and also the philosophical sense to see the meaninglessness of what exists and craft some new meaning in its place. And Faith certainly has the drive. She potentially could be a leader but she doesn't have that philosophical bent. She doesn't seem to care about ushering in a new age for humanity. Given what has happened to her in her life, the trauma she's endured, the terrible influences on her, namely the mayor, she seems to wallow in nihilism and never escape that. She's not out to create a new moral code for humanity. She's out to have a good time. Just a mix of nihilism and hedonism. Life is meaningless. Enjoy it while you can. Want, take, have.
So Nietzsche wouldn't exactly be thrilled with her. He might see the potential. He'd probably urge her to read some of his stuff, consider using her skills to lead people to a new age, and she'd probably counter that the mayor gave her a PlayStation. What does Nietzsche have to offer? So Faith, a foil to Buffy, but not exactly a Randian character either. For someone closer to Rand's heart, I think we have to look to Anya, everyone's favorite ex-vengeance demon turned shopkeeper. Now, it's hard to argue that Anya doesn't have that Randian selfishness down. She definitely seems to look out for herself first, she lives for herself, her own enjoyment, and by season five, She's learned about and embraced capitalism, extolling the idea of exchanging labor and goods for personal gain, coming to see the beauty in the idea of the free market. Anya is the closest thing we get to a Randian character. Now, probably not quite Randian. The influence of the rest of the Scooby gang on her brings her around to caring about others to some degree. Her relationship with Xander certainly helps, but she is the closest thing we get to a character that Rand would approve of. Someone whose first inclination is to live for herself. And it's important to note that on the show, Anya is portrayed as generally goofy. I mean, she's fun, she's likable, but her philosophy is portrayed as misguided and kind of absurd. So the one Randian character we get in the show is really just used to hammer home the idea that Rand and her ideas are sort of ridiculous. So once again, Buffy the character and Buffy in general, epitomizing anti-Rand philosophy. So that's my take on Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the anti-Rand story, and a show I highly recommend for October. If you've never watched it, check it out. A great thing to get into for Halloween season. Thanks for listening. And side rant. So, talking about Buffy the Vampire Slayer, I have to say, another piece of fiction where I really love the portrayal of vampires. Particularly what I like about Buffy the Vampire Slayer, I think, is they give you a detailed explanation of what happens when a person becomes a vampire. In Buffy the Vampire Slayer lore, the explanation is you get bit by a vampire, you die, your soul leaves your body, it goes to whatever afterlife it's going to go to, and a demon takes over your body, and starts walking around in it, and so that's a vampire. It's a demon inhabiting a dead body. And so this demon wearing your body kind of as a suit has your memories and will probably have your mannerisms and talk like you and kind of act like you, but it's a different being. It's an evil demon out to do evil things to people. And you, the person, your soul, you're dead and gone. And so it's a good explanation for why vampires are all evil, which is something not, it seems like not all vampire stories explain. Like you get bit by a vampire, you turn into a vampire, and all of a sudden you're evil. Uh, why? Aren't you still you? Maybe you need to drink blood, you don't like sunlight, but shouldn't you still be you and have the same moral sense you had before? And certainly some vampire stories play with that. You stay the person you are, but now you are afflicted with this horrible curse, which is going to affect your life, and maybe you'll become evil over time because of the things you have to do, but you stay who you are. But so much of vampire fiction gives us vampires where you become a vampire, and suddenly you're evil, and we don't get a good explanation for it. And this particularly bugged me in stuff like the movie Blade, which, by the way, I loved for so many other reasons, 
But this specific thing always bugged me. Blade portrays vampirism as essentially a virus. You get bit, you're afflicted with a virus that suddenly makes sunlight deadly to you and requires you to drink blood to survive. But the question is always, well, if it's just a virus that affects you physically, why are all the vampires in Blade evil? If it's just a virus, shouldn't your mind remain intact? I can understand the virus makes you need to drink blood and have to avoid garlic and silver and sunlight. I can get that. But the virus also turns you into a freaking sociopath. That always bugged me. But Buffy resolves that. Buffy tells us, yeah, you turn evil because you're not you anymore. It's a demon. It's a new creature. It's a new being. You're dead and gone. The evil thing that's walking around looking like you is a different thing. So I always liked that explanation. And further, I like that Buffy brings back a lot of aspects of vampire lore that seemed to have gotten lost by the 90s when the show came out and sort of had fallen out of the mainstream of vampire fiction, stuff like vampires not being able to enter a home without being invited inside. I like that Buffy brings that back into vampire fiction. It's something I don't think we had seen in a long time when Buffy came out. And I liked Buffy for emphasizing more of the religious and supernatural elements of vampire fiction, that vampires are demons and crosses still hurt them in holy water and so on. It's much more supernatural, bringing the supernatural, the fantastical, the religious back into vampire lore as opposed to the more scientific take on vampires like we got in Blade that seemed to be more in vogue in the 90s. And this, by the way, was kind of an interesting trend in general, I think, in the 90s and going into the 2000s. And Buffy was the exception. But in general, the 90s into the 2000s, a lot of the monster fiction we got, it was being redone in scientific terms. We were getting less supernatural and more scientific explanations for all of our favorite monsters. Blade did it with vampirism as a virus spread through bites. 28 Days Later did it with zombies. Same thing. It's just a virus that turns you kind of crazy and then you go out and bite people. Going further on, The Strain, the vampire novels slash comic books slash TV series by Guillermo del Toro. The Walking Dead, all things that reimagine the vampire, the zombie, as something that can be explained scientifically, something that has nothing to do with the supernatural or the religious. So this was an interesting trend that seemed to begin in the 90s and has really extended to today. And I don't know why this seemed to happen. I wonder if it's just the 90s were more concerned with viruses. There was a lot of other virus and disease type fiction at the time, the movie Outbreak. As I'm saying this, of course, all this is very relevant to today with Corona. But yeah, I think around the 90s, we become way more concerned about viruses and disease. So we see a lot of the monster fiction being reimagined to reflect these kinds of fears. So we get the scientific take on vampires and not the religious or the supernatural. And I kind of like that Buffy bucked that trend and brought vampires more back to their more supernatural, fantastical roots. That's my side rant. Thank you. Hey everybody, thanks for listening, and again, happy October. Please keep tuning in for the rest of the month as I do more horror and monster-themed episodes. Reach out on social media to let me know what you think. Please consider subscribing and reviewing. And as always, you can reach me on Twitter at Social Sci-Fi Show, on Facebook at Social Science Fiction Podcast, on Instagram at Social underscore Sci underscore Fi, and you can email me at Show at gmail.com. 
Thanks for listening. New episode next Tuesday. See you then.